This evening I'd like to talk about the, excuse me, the magic of the mind. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says that the mind is the forerunner of all things. That to speak or act with an unclear mind will mean that sorrow will follow us just as the cart follows the ox. But to speak or act with a clear mind, that happiness will follow us like a shadow. Also, it goes on to say that nothing can do us more harm than a thought unguarded. But then, once understood, nothing can be a greater friend and ally. I think in an ongoing way in our lives, we experience what a remarkably powerful force our mind can be. Sometimes our mind seems to be a source of really very intense levels of pain and sorrow. When we're caught in the grip of obsession, when our minds feel to be filled with thoughts of anger or rage or resentment, when our mind feels to be saturated with thoughts of self-judgment or hatred or bitterness towards others, it's probably hard to find anything in the world that creates more pain for us, pain for us than our mind in that moment taking us into levels of existence that can be nightmarish, that are like hell realms. And yet it is this same mind, apparently, that can also be a source of extraordinary pleasure. It's apparently this same mind that can be filled with you know, wonderful, exotic fantasies and dreams that can be filled with romantic and exciting images and plans and ideas and, you know, all the construction of happiness and love and perfection, the ideals we can construct in our mind. And that same mind that led us to hell realms, it seems, can also lead us into heavenly realms. Sometimes we experience our mind, it's like a swamp at times. You know, it feels hard to find any clarity, uh, there can be tremendous amount of dullness, of confusion, of, of sense of being lost. And we can be in a grip, in the grip of some of those states of mind to the point where we believe they're eternal. You know, they're never going to be, never going to end. You know, we come up with these statements, you know, I'm always going to be dull. You know, I'm always going to be confused. And yet, it's apparently this same mind that can shine with pristine clarity that can be the source of dazzling insight, clear comprehension, a clear sense of connection. 
And this mind is a very curious creature. It is always changing its shape, and yet we often have bouts of amnesia about that. When our mind assumes a certain shape, it is like that that is our world. The Buddha once said that what our mind dwells upon becomes the shape of our mind, and that the shape of our mind very frequently becomes the shape of our world. Because our world is colored by shape of our mind, conclusions drawn on the basis of our states of mind. We see that our mind seems to carry this baggage of past memory, of impressions, of experience, sometimes memories and thoughts about the past that repeat themselves over and over again. But our mind also has this capacity to envision the future, to create the plans, the ideals, the projects of the future. It seems too that through our mind we can come closer to what is present. Now, at first glance, our mind seems remarkably interesting. I think when we study our mind very, very closely, <laughs> we lose that sense of infatuation. <laughs> it is incredibly repetitive. Do you notice how many new thoughts have you had today? If you were really lucky, probably two. You know, and the rest, they just kind of repeat. We've had them before. And yet we seem compelled to have the same ones over and over again. In fact, we can see ourselves replaying the same thoughts shamelessly. As if we expect something new is going to be born of them. So sometimes we find our mind on close inspection really rather repetitive and not very interesting at all. However, at other times, we can find our mind so exciting. You know, it has all these wonderful ideas, you know, and new projects and new directions. How it changes. You know, the restlessness, the agitation that grips us in one moment where we see our thoughts just so fragmented and skipping like a butterfly from flower to flower. That same mind in the next moment can be so calm, so tranquil. If we follow the journey of our mind, the, the life of our mind for a single day, a single hour, what we see is this roller coaster effect. The heights of heaven and the depths of hell, the highs and the lows, the elation and the despair, and actually quite a lot in between, which really feels rather neutral. Now, it is not unusual for people both in life and I think in meditation practice to take a position regarding their mind. But they often relate to their mind as being something of a problem. Something that gets in the way, an obstacle, an enemy, an opponent, particularly in the moment 
when we feel really gripped by obsessive, repetitive thoughts. So sometimes we, we often feel that our practice relies somehow on overcoming our mind. And I think this, this sense of the mind, is, uh, regarding the mind as a problem, gets particularly highlighted on a retreat, you know, where there is nowhere to go to get away from this mind. Sometimes, you, you know, I look out and I see people holding their heads and their faces are grimaced in pain. And if, you know, we were to ask, what's the problem? And say, my mind. We also take it so personally, don't we? You know, everybody feels that their mind is something particularly to be ashamed of. But, you know, if anybody here was to volunteer to sit up here for an hour for a sitting and just articulate every passing thought, well, first of all, our words don't go that fast. You know, our thoughts tend to move much faster than our words could ever came up with, keep up with. But if we were to articulate every passing thought, you know, rather than everybody else out there being utterly horrified and appalled and saying, you know, what a ridiculous mind you have, you know, most people would nod their heads in agreement. I recognize that one. You know, it looks very familiar. Sometimes people think that they would be really good at meditation if it wasn't for their mind. Now part of, I think part of what leads us to feel that the mind is a problem, part of it is its unpredictability. It seems so unpredictable. You know, we can have just a few moments of calmness and we're, you know, congratulating ourselves for getting somewhere. We start to congratulate ourselves for finding some serenity. We finally have a moment of relief when the thoughts seem to be slowing down. And in the midst of that congratulating, you know, out of nowhere, what will happen? We will get ambushed by a mental storm that takes over our consciousness and we're on the the roller coaster once more. And when we're on that roller coaster once more, it can seem as if that tranquility of just moments ago it's some distant memory, inaccessible to us, as we find ourselves hooked by some new dance of the mind. Even when there is calmness, have you noticed, it's rarely just able to be calm. We have to have a thought about it. Now I'm calm, isn't that good? <laughs> you do, it's rarely there's just there still. No, no, we have to describe it. We have to have a description. It's totally useless, irrelevant, unnecessary thought. Just as suddenly we can be caught in one of those storms of mind, and then seemingly equally unpredictably, it ends. We don't know why it ended. We haven't performed any special trick. You know, we have had no inventive strategy. And yet the storm has passed. And it's looking back at it in retrospect, we find it hard to believe. We could possibly have been so infatuated by that particular stream of consciousness. We wonder where it came from. 
I think one of the other difficulties that we experience about our mind, apart from its unpredictability, that we don't seem to be able to predict what will come next, that we don't seem to be able to find a, a, a stable, reliable mind. The other problem we experience with it is the way that we get so convinced by the contents of our thoughts. You know, we are, we are absolutely convinced of the truth of the thoughts that arise. You know, we can walk outside calmly, mindfully doing more walking meditation, you know, and perhaps someone, or someone inadvertently crosses our path. You know, and the thought arises, oh, they did that on purpose. You know, they must have done that on purpose. They're, they're out to, to unsettle me, you know. They don't like me. You know, I'm sure it's something I probably offended them earlier. You know, and we're off in this whole construction. And we're absolutely assured of its truth. Our constructions are not always painful. You know, again, we can sit and in the quiet of our sitting, when we're intended to be mindful, we can be very busy constructing this kind of ideal world for ourselves, can't we? You know, and think of the nature of fantasy. You know, how how convincing fantasy seems to be in the moment. You know, we've you know, we've become the next Maitreya, you know, we're off in India in our cave, you know, and you know, Buddhahood is on the way and this whole fantasy is constructed. And again in that moment we are so engrossed. We can have a burst of insight and immediately we start rearranging our, our world according to that insight. You know, we suddenly have an insight into impermanence, everything changes, you know, we've let go of everything in our life, you know, everything has been renounced and, and amazing, you know, we've got a lunch and we've completely forgotten the insight. It's just like it's gone. Now this phenomenon in retreat circles, we, we rather somewhat jokingly refer to it as yogi mind. You know, it's not only experienced by yogis, but by people on retreat, but it's certainly highlighted on retreat. The Buddha had a more official name for some of these constructions, which is Papancha. And Papancha is the multiplicity of thought that distorts and colors our perception. Papancha is the multiplicity, the proliferation of thought that colors our way of seeing the moment. Through the proliferation of thought, we weave the stories about our life, about ourselves, about other people. And through the proliferation of our thinking, we form relationships moment to moment with the world around us, which makes it very personal and unique to us, depending on the kind of story, the kind of conditioning we bring to that moment. Then the world becomes our work. We see the storyteller, and the story, and the story unfolds the world. 
Now there are different kinds of patancha, different kinds of proliferation that are mentioned. One is the kind of proliferation of thought that is resting on the foundation of either craving or aversion. We project onto things, people, experiences, the power to, uh, for them to please us or displease us. We invest them with the authority to govern our well-being. We say, this will make me happy, this will destroy me. This will support and delight me. This other thing has the power to threaten me, to harm me. You know, the example, classic example on retreats about the Vipassana romances and the Vipassana vendettas. You know, where in the silence of a retreat, it's not unusual that someone suddenly finds himself falling in love with somebody else on this silent retreat that they've never met, never exchanged a word with. And yet through the whole kind of proliferation of thought, you know, within hours, days, they, you know, they've constructed a world and a future with that person. You know, where they're married, they have children, you know, maybe they're next in the throes of divorce. They've never even spoken. Equally, the Vipassana Vendetta, where similarly in silence, you know, we can become so utterly annoyed with someone else on the retreat. You know, often they're not even doing anything. You know, it might be the color of their socks or their haircut or, you know, the way that they sit or the way that they eat. And suddenly they become our worst enemy. And we're convinced, you know, that we would have the, the best retreat in the world if only this other person wasn't on it. It's all happening within our thoughts. Those thoughts are very convincing. We don't see the impermanence within them. It is called tanha and dosa papancha. And we see how this happens so much, not just on retreat, but in our life. When something <coughs> is pleasant, we're attracted to it, we like it, we invest it or them with the power to make us happy. And how many thoughts we have about that. And how those thoughts are the forerunners of our words, the forerunners of our actions. You know, there's someone or something in our life that we dislike, who seems to threaten us, unsettle us in some way. And how many thoughts are born of those feelings of, of fear and of anger, where we have given that person or that situation the authority to govern our heart, to say they, to believe that they have the power to make us so deeply unhappy. The second form of papancha that the Buddha speaks about is Diti Papancha, or the papancha, the proliferation of thought that is born of views. Now, it must be said that very often we don't know we have a view until we meet someone with a differing view. <laughs> Recently, I, I, I must admit, and this, this is just my view, you know, 
I spend a lot of time teaching in the States, and it's always puzzled me over these last years that I've never met anyone who voted for the current president. And it always puzzled me, and I meet hundreds of people, and I say, well, who voted? Well, you know, who voted for it? At least no one admitted to it, isn't it? So recently I was on my way to the airport, and I had this uh, car driver who was taking me from a car service taking me to the airport. And I had this really novel experience, the first time I'd ever met a Republican. And for two hours, it gave me the whole Republican view of the world. And it was uh, so fascinating. It was absolutely so fascinating. Because in a way, it was like totally like I could see, I could find myself stepping inside it. And it seemed perfectly legitimate. You know, when he told me that, you know, that no way was this, you know, incumbent, this new candidate, you know, he was a communist anyway. And he was going to take his money away from him and give it to people who didn't deserve it. Uh-huh. I could see how he felt that. But it was so interesting because I saw also in myself this kernel of irritation. <laughs> you know, I thought, aha, here is one view meeting another view. You know, and we think how much conflict, how much contention in the world is really that clash of views, isn't it? Where I say, I believe, I am right. You know, I must be right, which makes you wrong. And we see how many views we have. You know, being uh, on retreat is so fascinating for this. You know, we could have a note in one moment where someone is, you know, absolutely extolling the silence. You know, it's so wonderful. You know, it makes everybody so trustworthy, you know, and it's so intimate. And right beside it, there can be a note saying, you know, silence is hostile. You know, and it's alienating. And everybody here is so depressed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think, well, it's, it's our views, isn't it? We, we have these views that we are, we don't even know their views until they rub up either against reality, which contradicts our view, the actuality of the moment, or, or they rub up against someone else's view. But think about how many thoughts we have it, how many thoughts it takes, first of all, to come to a view, and then how many thoughts it, it takes to support a view. Really a lot. And yet somehow our views are part of our story, aren't they? They're part of ourselves. So actually our views are very precious to us. You know, we, we treasure them, we cherish them deeply, because my views are me. You know, if I see the world this way, if, if I think this is wonderful or this is terrible, you know, or that is admirable or that is despicable, well, all of those views are part of the fabric of my story. Who would I be without my views? The third form of papancha is monopapancha. It is the proliferation of thought that really uh, arises and circulates and revolves around the me story, the I story, I am. It is the kind of thought we have, you know, all our thoughts of self-judgment are part of mana papancha. All our thoughts that are flattering about ourselves are part of mana papancha. You know, my thoughts about, well, just take apart your story. You know, and you see 
how many views of self we have. Now, this process of papancha doesn't arrive ready-made. It is a process. You know, coming to these moments where we say, I am, you are, this is, you know, I like, I hate. This is a result of a process. Now, understanding the process of our mind, to understand the process of our mind, the construction of our personal world, is actually something that is deeply important. It is also very liberating. Because if you understand the process of your mind, you are far less prone to panic about your mind. And perhaps there's a possibility of some freedom from some of the beliefs, some of the embedded views that arise. So what are the ingredients of papancha? Now, I will use an example that is very close to most people's hearts, on retreats especially, and it's lunch. So for papancha to begin, all that is really needed is the bare sense data, the sensory information, and consciousness. That's all that's needed for Kapancha to begin. The contact between those three. Now perhaps in the course of a morning, you know, you walk by the kitchen 20 times. Now, what you have in those little journeys are smells, odors, you have your nose, you have consciousness, you have everything you need for Kapancha to begin. Now perhaps you walk by the kitchen and there is the odor, the nose, the contact, and the process of identifying with it. Now perhaps the concept, you know, the scent you identify as garlic. Well, you know, feeling comes. Some of those feelings are probably related to past feelings. You know, perhaps you've had very pleasant experiences with garlic. You know, so there's a pleasant feeling. You know, perhaps you remember the time you fell in love in an Italian restaurant. You know, and you only need to smell the garlic, don't you? And the story begins to replay. And then perhaps you remember when you fell out of love. As a result of that meeting, there's an unpleasant association. A different kind of papancha story begins. Uh, perhaps you walk, another person walks by the kitchen and they smell the same smell. But, you know, maybe their metabolism, garlic doesn't agree with it. You know, so they acknowledge, you know, they perceive, identify garlic. And again, a story begins, oh, that's, that's not good food to serve on a retreat, you know. I need to write a note to the cooks, you know, and let them know about the right diet to serve people on retreats. Oh, and I'm going, I'm going to suffer if I eat this. Now, depending upon the way that our thoughts gather and collect, collect we would maybe find ourselves at the front of the food line before the bell rings, salivating, you know, because of our whole punch around the smell, or we might find ourselves avoiding lunch altogether. 
Now, when often the, this papancha happens so quickly that what we have is retrospective wisdom. You know, we look back and we say, oh, I, I really didn't need to get so stirred up about this. You know, I really didn't need to get so, so entangled. And yet in the midst of it, we're totally convinced of it, the reality of our story. And sometimes it's frustrating mm-hmm. to see ourselves falling for the magic of the mind over and over. Now, the Buddha, of course, had a few words um, to address this frustration, because certainly meditation has never been presented as just a kind of passive awareness in which we watch ourselves falling in the same holes over and over again. Papancha rests upon a basis of unwise attention. And what is unwise attention? It is grasping at the sensory impression and our associations with it. So when we walk by the kitchen, the smell, the whole proliferation of that story about hate and love, rests upon our grasping at the sense impression and our associations with it. Any thought story begins with that grasping at the sense impression and the associations with it, whether it's a thought, a body sensation, a sight, a smell, a sound. It would also encourage the cultivation of wise attention not dwelling anywhere, not dwelling, not grasping anywhere, is a way of cultivating a mind which is boundless and immeasurable. So how do we get there? Now, there are different ways of learning to have skillful means, skillful attention, with the process of papancha. Now part of the way obviously involves beginning to calm the thought process. You know, when our, when our minds are so speedy, so entangled, so ensnared with every passing thought, you know, we always just have retrospective wisdom. And what we want to do is to come closer to the point of contact. So part of that certainly is making the effort and cultivating the wise intention, the samatha, the calmness of being, the mindfulness that allows things to begin to slow down inwardly. So we see much of our meditation practice is in truth devoted to developing wise attention. You know, from the most basic actually to the most subtle levels. You know, you think about coming back to the breath. As I mentioned, it's a process of learning to let go. It's a process of learning to disentangle. Instead of being swept away by every passing thought, we're using wise intention to inform wise attention. So instead of dwelling, we learn to let things be. We learn to let things go. Now, with patience and practice, you do this. And the, the event, the busyness of the mind does indeed begin to calm. You know, this 
path has been kind of, uh, you know, tested quite a few times. It actually does work. Mm-hmm. It may take some patience and it may take some time and it does take some effort. But calmness of mind and to the beginning of slowing down some of that inner agitation, uh, that's not an experience that just belongs to a select few people and everybody else, you know, stuck forever with agitation. Wise intention, wise attention will work. We begin to see more clearly. As things slow down, as things calm down, we begin to see more clearly the points of contact, the meeting of the sensor, the sensory information and consciousness. We begin to see the beginnings of Papancha. But also we shouldn't be too demanding of ourselves. Because when we begin begin to practice, for most people, they're nowhere near that point of contact. You know, they wake up halfway down the thought chain. But that's also okay, because that's where we start. You know, whether we start there or whether we start at the point of contact really doesn't matter. We start with the moment of wakefulness and knowing what entanglement is. When we know what entanglement is, when we see the suffering of entanglement, we actually see the kindness and the compassion of letting go. And we start with that moment of wakefulness. We learn to actually lose our intoxication. You know, because I think partially it is intoxication. We're often deeply intoxicated with the contents of our mind. You know, they, we can be absolutely infatuated with the contents of our mind. But sometimes I think it is kind of like an addiction. You know, I think, therefore I am. You know, I'm, I'm busy inwardly so I don't have to face that terrifying prospect of, of, you know, maybe having nothing to think. You know, maybe I would disappear if I had nothing to think. So we actually learn to to let go of some of the intoxication, some of the infatuation, because attention, by its nature, is happiness. You know, why is attention, by its nature, is happiness? You know, people don't undertake this practice for countless years and sit on cushions, you know, for 30 years because it's an ongoing miserable experience. You know, why is attention, is happiness? Calmness is happiness. Inner stillness is truly happiness. But it takes patience and it takes effort. So it's not just kind of cutting the thoughts within that whole process of learning to bring the mind to more stillness. There is often tremendous insight involved. You know, seeing the places where we cling, seeing the places where we grasp seeing our infatuation with intensity. You know, for some people the issue is infatuation with intensity. Intensity makes them feel alive. You know, drama makes them feel alive. You know, and we're afraid that if we have no intensity, suddenly our life is going to deteriorate into this kind of barren, flat desert. Hardly. Hardly. Intensity supports the self-story. Intensity in itself, I don't believe, actually provides happiness. But it certainly excites the storyteller. Hmm? 
So there is insight involved in learning to come to calmness. It is not just to call it a, a, a question of developing more samatha, more one-pointedness. It is also a question of developing more insight, cultivating more wisdom. It is something that, in the early years of my practice, something that always used to puzzle me, because I, I practiced and trained mostly in Asian early years. And sometimes I would go to group interviews, you know, with some Westerners and some Asian students, you know, and it always puzzled me the distinction between our seemingly two very different experiences of meditation. You know, because us Westerners would go into these interview groups, you know, and sweat on our brow, you know, and our teeth were clenched, you know, and our bodies would be so tense, and we'd just be compla- complaining all the time. Oh, my mind is doing this, you know, and I hate this, you know, my body's in pain, and, you know, I have all this turmoil. We'd sit there, you know, with these stories of, of woe. And it used to irritate me so immensely. You know, I'd have these Indian students I was practicing with, it would come their turn to kind of report, and they say, oh, everything is arising and passing. Yeah. <laughs> 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 things arising and fading away, you know, there's no problem, you know, their faces would be wreathed in smiles, you know, and they'd look so happy. And I'd think, you know, is this some kind of different mind? Actually, not a different mind at all. Not a different mind at all. First of all, I mean, certainly there was a quality of faith that was probably very different. But I think also there was some intrinsic agreement, especially with impermanence. Especially with impermanence. The Buddha taught that the mind is a sensor. Just like any of our other sense drives, it has its own sensory information. Thoughts, images, memories, plans, ideas. Just like the ear has sounds, the eye has sights, the nose has smells, the body has sensations. The mind has all these other things. Phenomena arising in that sense door and passing, appearing and disappearing. So where does the pain come? Where does the anguish, the, the turmoil come? Because we take our mind very much more personally. You know, we don't see the same problem with the sights or the smells or the sounds. You know, when we sit here and we hear a car outside the window, we don't say, I'm a car. When we walk past the kitchen, whatever our relationship with garlic is, we certainly don't say, I am the garlic. You know, we're very happy to let the car be the car and the garlic be the garlic. But we feel very differently about our thoughts, don't we? We feel def- very differently about our states of mind that arise. We don't have this same equanimity. Here we see the way in which the holding and the clinging and the grasping, the identification arises so powerfully out of our story of self. We say, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm distracted, I'm reactive, I'm negative, I'm positive. When we do, are able to step back a little, perhaps we see that the mind and its activities are really not the problem at all. 
The mind is not an adversary. The mind is not an obstacle to anything. The mind is not an obstacle to peace. It's not an obstacle to happiness. The mind actually is not a problem. More what it what creates the illusion or the sense of our mind being a problem actually is ignorance. You know, actually when we say we sometimes we say that craving is the cause of suffering, but then it's no it's more true to say that there is no single cause of suffering. But ignorance or misunderstanding or delusion certainly plays a key in suffering. Now, ignorance, when it's, that word is used in this tradition, is not to imply an absence of knowledge. We can have plenty of knowledge and yet still have ignorance. Ignorance is superimposing a layer of unreality upon actuality. Sometimes ignorance is broken down into three aspects. Perceiving the impermanent to be permanent is one aspect of ignorance. Perceiving solidity, unchanging world and ourself is contrary to the truth of life. But it becomes the source of grasping and resistance and suffering. Another aspect of ignorance is actually seeing the unsatisfactory to be satisfactory. You know, we can see it as being satisfactory to to dwell in fantasy and, and daydreams and opinions and beliefs. We can see it satisfactory to dwell in our, uh, our conclusions, to, to seek pleasure rather than peace. We can see it as being satisfactory not to be free. The third aspect of ignorance is perceiving or believing in a permanent abiding self-existence when there is none. Christian mystic once said that anxiety is the mood of ignorance. And I think we, we see that. That when, the, when there is, you know, any of those three aspects operating in our life, that there is anxiety. We're chasing the pleasant and avoiding the unpleasant, afraid of the unpleasant. We're chasing permanence and trying to pretend impermanence is not true. We have the anxiety of constantly trying to support and bolster our sense of self and live in fear of its loss. And that anxiety creates tremendous amount of agitation in our life. Much of our practice is actually devoted to learning to uproot ignorance, to see ignorance as ignorance. Sometimes the analogy that the Buddha used is he used the analogy of comparing it to going to a magic show, that the magician comes to town with their show and it talks about you know we take our seat in the audience and we sit there with our, our kind of mouth hanging open absolutely astounded and awed by the, by, the, by the magic and the miracles of his tricks you know things appear out of nowhere and disappear and you know people are cut in half and you know other people levitate and we're absolutely astounded and stunned and totally enthralled with the show believing it to be true. 
And then everybody said, well, what, what, how would it be if I, instead of sitting in the audience with our mouth hanging open, you know, we took our seat in the wings of the stage and we saw the hidden levers and the strings and all of the mechanisms that were involved in performing all of these illusions, we wouldn't be deceived. It wouldn't make the show less enjoyable. You know, we could still enjoy it and appreciate and, you know, celebrate these wondrous skills, but we would not believe it to be true. And there is the freedom in not believing the untrue to be true. There's a tremendous freedom in not being caught in the, the kind of webs of the illusions that create this apparent solidity in our world. There's a certain freedom in not mistaking the appearance of things to be the truth of what they are. You know, when we speak about investigation in this practice, it is really probing beneath the appearance of things. When we say, I am, we learn to turn it around and say, am I? You know, when we say, you are, we learn to turn that around and say, are you? When we're prone to say, this is like this, you know, we are encouraged more to turn it around and say, is it? We learn to, to cultivate that kind of questioning, not taking a position anywhere within the world of views or within the world of ignorance. And we discover the, the liberation of heart and mind within that, of not dwelling anywhere, of not taking a position anywhere. just a couple of moments quietly Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.